an association of people who share common beliefs and activities. This is Koinonia. This is Community. And now, your host, Tom Brown. As 2016 is quickly moving along, we're already a week in, 51 more to go. Good afternoon. I am delighted you are here. There are so many things coming up. Obviously, uh, the pro-life issue in January always gets a, a highlight, if you will. I'm kind of excited because we're returning to, well, we're returning to event-level activity here in Phoenix that we had in the late 80s, early 90s with a march and a rally on January 22nd. And it's going to start at Wesley Bowling Plaza, and I'm looking forward to being there. I'll be a part of the MC team uh, for the march. But if you'd like more information for that, azliferally.org. That's azliferally.org, the Arizona Life Coalition March and Rally, January 22nd. And if you could register just so that we have some idea how many people we're hoping to have, a little over 5,000 people. Uh, Yes, you may need to take a few hours off uh, around your lunch hour or do like I am and 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 take the whole day so that you can uh, dedicate. But it, here's the reason: this is an election year, and even though a, a lot of the candidates that you and I would likely support are pro-life, the topic doesn't come up in the halls of the legislature as much as you would think. But if there are thousands of people out just down from the state capitol. I can assure you that we will get the attention of the political personalities that are involved in our legislature uh, and other parts of the political process, and that's important, especially in this election year. So I hope you'll join me. Again, you'll be hearing me talk about it quite a lot. Um, Looking forward to it, looking forward to the march, the rally, the whole thing. It's going to be really outstanding. Uh, Tomorrow night, something, or excuse me, Saturday night, a little closer uh, on the calendar, Nazareth. You may remember Nazareth. He's been on the show a few times before. We had an event with him not too long ago. He's a comedian. It's fully family-friendly. He's going to be at Christ Greenfield Lutheran Church in Gilbert, and you can get information for that by tickets, ComedianNazareth.com. That's ComedianNazareth.com. If you want directions to the church, their website is cglchurch.org, Christ Greenfield Lutheran Church.org. And uh, in fact, I'm going to try to get uh, I'm going to try to get Nazareth on tomorrow, as a matter of fact, just to see how he's doing uh, getting into the new year. One of the things that I love doing each and every year is praying for our legislature. You know, I start off with uh, Mary and I, we had the distinct honor and uh, blessing to Ring in the New Year on North Mountain at sunrise, 732, blowing the shofar, or at least the best facsimile that I could do, uh, being a bit of a rookie at blowing the shofar. But we we brought in the year with prayer. We're going to do the same thing with Bridge Builders International and Center for Arizona Policy this coming Monday, the 11th, at 7 a.m. at the Arizona State Capitol. Uh, You'll want to dress warm because we will be outside waiting for the security check initially, and then as we move between the buildings, 
but we're literally going to go into the halls of the of, of the uh, of the Senate and uh, uh, Representative Hall and around the uh, main Capitol, bathing this new year, this new legislative session in prayer. It's important, and I hope you'll join me. You can go to the FaithTalk1360.com website, click on the event tab, and you'll see the information right there. Today's show, I'm excited. I, You know, when I was, I don't know, 14, 13, younger, maybe even a little older, history was not that big a deal. Now that I've actually lived some history, I find history very fascinating, especially biblical history. That's what we're going to talk about a little today. And I'm looking forward to sharing with you Stan Reynolds joining us here on Koinonia, KPXQ. Well, I am excited about today. If you would have told me that we were going to have a program on biblical history 35 years ago, I probably wouldn't have had the same excitement, but uh, I am excited about today. Uh, my friend Stan Reynolds, welcome. Stan, how are Good you to today? Good to be with you, yes. Uh, it did, now, you've always kind of been a, a science and history guy, right? Yes, ever since my days at ASU and Yeah, before. that's what I thought. And, of course, you know, the financial world is where you've made your uh, tents, so to speak, uh, for your career. You were instrumental in Mary and I uh, being able to walk into uh, 2016 debt-free. And I, I, I share that with the audience not to brag or anything like that, but just to be an encouragement. Right. You know, I, I didn't win the lottery, and I don't plan on winning the whatever it is, you know, this weekend, 700 plus, or uh, the, that just sounds like a lot of problems to me. But, uh, you know, God, if you're faithful to what God's Word teaches uh, with your finances, you can see a freedom that you just can't fully understand. I, I, and guys, I'm telling you right now, if if your if your wife is uh, a little nervous in that area, boy, this is a way to give her some security. I absolutely guarantee. Now, in my life, I was the spender, Mary's the saver, so that's obviously a little different than uh, a lot of households, but just so blessed. But Stan, uh, there's a, a principle that he taught me 27 years ago. I remember him very, says, and it was the, it's the furniture, you know, it was, oh. it's the furniture example. Yes. You know, you buy $10,000 worth of furniture. Uh, and at the time, I'm thinking, yeah, and that's yeah. that's not going to happen. But, you know, you can either pay $7,000 for it or you can pay $14,000 for it. And I'm like, what? It's $10,000, right? Mm. So uh, that is kind of the uh, the linchpin of me understanding uh, uh, finances and then also uh, always being faithful with tithes and offerings uh, as well. So that set aside, that stands tent making, all right? But his real passion at heart is uh, what we're going to talk about today. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I just returned to Israel this last October because I wanted my mom to go. And there, even though topography in Israel, you're going, oh, that looks like Sedona, or that looks like, you know, outside of uh, Cave Creek, or this over here looks... It, there's the topography in Israel is very similar to what we see here in Arizona in a lot of ways, but boy, there's a richness, there's a history. Mm. When you're on the Mount of uh, uh, Megiddo, or you're 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 in uh, next to the Sea of Galilee, or you're getting baptized in the Jordan River, that's more than just going on a vacation, right? Yep. I mean, there's some there's real history there, and the thing that's so incredibly fascinating to me is even with 
you know, the hundreds and hundreds of years of archaeology and uh, that area, Israel, just, you know, since the 60s, only really having uh, the access that they have now, we're still learning a lot. And it seems like every year there's something new that proves the Bible even more true and more accurate than anybody would admit to uh, before. And one of the things you wanted to talk about today, King David. You know, you just said in the 70s, you know, in the 80s, the 90s, David was a myth or maybe a good story or whatever, but it's not really the case anymore. It really isn't. Uh, when I was in ASU in the 70s, the professors and others would teach at that time that David, if he existed at all, was maybe nothing more than a myth. There was no reference to him outside of the Bible. Certainly, he didn't preside over a large kingdom with uh, important influence in that time. At best, he was maybe a local tribal chieftain <laughs> of a of an loosely affiliated group of people. That would change our uh, idea of him quite drastically, wouldn't it? Well, what we... What we understand from the Bible is this outrageous story that everything we've ever done wrong in life can be completely forgiven mm-hmm. and set aside. And and we tell people that there is grace here that will change everything. And it's not based upon what you do to measure up, but based upon what Jesus Christ did. But Jesus Christ is the son of David. He's from the line and lineage of David, and he was prophetically set forth hundreds of years before. Why would we believe this outlandish statement? No other religion of the world makes a statement like that that doesn't follow through and say, but you have to do this to prove. The grace statement of Scripture is so outlandish, and no other religion contains it. And how how can we even believe that but... God was gracious enough to tell the future in advance to put thousands of references in various places to Jesus Christ who was coming. And one of those is that he would be a descendant from the line and the lineage of David. If David didn't exist, then nothing we can believe about what the Bible says about Jesus Christ can be trusted Mm -hmm. either. Yeah. And we're seeing modern archaeology, other documents being found, or I, I call them documents. It's not really, it's more tablets and and pottery and and walls and things of that nature. Right. But it's amazing. They just found something not too far from uh, the the Temple Mount, you know, just in the last couple of months. And it's like I, I'm I'm just always amazed that there's still things to be found. And that area of the world has been under such turmoil, and kingdoms have moved in and out and suppressed and conquered. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, there just hasn't been time in many places to find this. It's really the nexus of the world. If you take a giant map and draw a big X, large, long X through Jerusalem, out one way it points toward Europe, down the other way it points toward Africa, out the other way down toward Australia and Asia, and out the other way up toward Russia, it really is the center nexus of of the known history of the world. And uh, there's been a lot of clamoring over those lands. One of the things, for example, when I uh, went to Israel a couple of years ago that I didn't know until that trip was and it's it's really astounding when you're standing there and you look at the topography. Uh, Magdala was actually a uh, community that was on the thoroughfare from you know the north part of the earth to the south part of the earth. In a lot of ways, everybody you kind of had to go through that area. You're going to go between the the mountain range and and uh, and the Sea of Galilee, and that was 
obviously a place of great commerce and great interaction and all of these things. And in the Bible, you know, it was just another town that, you know, somebody was from. I think Mary was from there, wasn't she? Yes, I think she was. One of the Marys, one of the many Marys. So you have to believe that Jesus obviously was in that area. Uh, It talks about, but standing there and seeing it, Gosh, and and seeing these are the this is where the wares were sold. Here is the where the fish were put. You know, you, you can see the Sea of Galilee from there. Why would they have these pits there if they weren't selling in a you know like a market? Like you would go to a farmer's market now, just walking around the synagogue there. Well, I think what I find exciting is the information about Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was, for many of you who know the story, have done a little bit of your reading in the Old Testament, you know Mm -hmm. the story of David and his fall with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba's husband was Uriah Mm -hmm. the Hittite. Uh, An incredible story. In fact, I mean, here's a guy that that organizes a murder of the husband of the woman he's taking away after committing adultery. I mean, you kind of don't get much lower than that. This is lowest of the low, right? In fact, there are some folks around the world in, in other religions that actually believe that the Bible can't possibly be true. Because no way would you let a guy like that, scoundrel as he was, mm-hmm. be a leader. He would be, you know, in other religions, you get your position of authority because you're, you're seemingly so great and so holy. But the Bible's full of all these flawed people because the Bible's yeah. full of humans that, Amen. that God has dealt with. And I'm glad of that. I I'm mean, encouraged by that. The story of, of Uriah the Hittite would be like as if in modern day, can you imagine a situation where it came out? that a president of the United States had had an affair with the wife of a Navy SEAL and had sent a message to the brigade in Afghanistan that when the battle raged, the Navy SEALs were to pull back and leave the one Navy SEAL there to be captured, tortured, cut apart by the Taliban. Yeah. This is essentially what David did <laughs> with Uriah the Hittite. Yeah. But critics have uh, said for a long, long time, Uriah the Hittite, the Bible mentions over the 50 different times the Bible talks about the Hittites, yeah. you know? And so if you've read the Bible, you, you know, you're familiar with this. But outside the Bible, no reference to the Hittite Empire at all. And early uh, folks said, you see, they're just making this stuff right. up as it's they go along. A, a nice fairy tale. So I'll give you a little background on it. In 1834, a French archaeologist began excavating an area about 100 miles north of Ankara, Turkey, where he saw some strange, uh, misunderstood stone ruins. It took another 50 years of excavation in that area. In 1876, they began to uncover a previously unknown language in that area on the stones in Turkey that had been uncovered. By 1893, 1894, they had undecipherable fragments of pottery with this language on it that they couldn't figure out what the language was. And then in 1906, Henry, not Henry, sorry, Hugo Winkler. I wanted to say Henry Winkler, but that's, <laughs> that's an entirely different story for another hey. time. Hugo Winkler began uh, taking over a seven-year excavation there where underneath the ruins, he broke free into a royal library archive chamber full of 10,000 clay tablets recording the various minutia of the governmental works of an empire that had previously unknown that they eventually interpreted the language and began to read the tablets and piece together the history of this Hittite empire that wow. indeed, when they dated everything in there, came to the ninth and 10th centuries B.C., precisely around about the time of David and Solomon 
and the kingship. That is stunning. And so you ride the Hittite. Actually was a Hittite. So what do you think that your professor from 1970 at ASU would say about this? Well, some of this material about the Hittites had begun to be common knowledge. But in the world of academia, it takes approximately 40 to 50 years from the time a a find is found in the field uh, to overturn the prevailing notions of academia to make its way into the textbooks and to then finally become the orthodoxy that's now being taught to make that entire change. So it's not uncommon for folks to be in schools being taught stuff today that, in fact, if you're on the cutting edge of what's being found, you know, actually, that's not true that's not at true. all. You yeah. know. I remember when my son gave up on ASU. He was one class left, left uh-huh. to getting his degree. And he was computer stuff. And they're teaching him a, a language called C++. And he's, he knows they're not even using that language out in the programming world for applications. Yeah, it's not going to help me at what all. What in the world am I still going here to school yeah, for? Paying this good money to learn, uh, well, history. When you're talking about technology, history can be 30 minutes ago, almost, right. sometimes. Wow. That's, this is fascinating. We've got a lot more to talk about. This is going to be fun. As we continue on, Stan Reynolds uh, joining me here on Koinonia. You're listening to Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. guessing this isn't a uh, news flash to any of my audience, or at least I hope it isn't, but you know the Bible's actually true? Uh, it, it really, when it says stuff, there's really truth there. Uh, I've always, uh, and I say that obviously with mirth, but there is there is something to understand that, uh, you know, when in context, sometimes the uh, the Bible can be made to look foolish because people will take out of context, uh, not just out of context of Scripture, but out of context of who wrote it and what time period it was in. And uh, there, there's just mounting evidence outside of the Bible that prove these things really did happen. Right. It may be that someone chooses to not believe the implications of the final message of the Bible right. about the fact that the Creator invaded and took action in history to mm-hmm. to connect with us. And that's that's all right if they don't want to believe that. But to fall back and say, well, I don't know. You know, that book, it's been copied so, and translated so many times. And who knows if what we read even is close to what was originally written down in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but the mounting data that's coming in suggests that isn't true. And David is still one of the, the inspirational characters for me personally because, as you talked about earlier, what a scoundrel at times, but at times also a man after my own heart. There was no reference outside the Bible up until 1992 wow. for uh, David as a historic figure. David, uh, of course, are, uh, we know that he rose to become king of the golden era of Israel's time under David and Solomon, where their kingdom had great expanse and, and coverage. 
And not only that, but they, he became the, the head of a lineage uh, of kings that came after him, his descendants, who were kings, like a dynasty. He was the head of a dynasty. And so the Bible refers to that dynasty as the house of David, that so-and-so was of the house of David. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that he lived in David's physical house, but it means he was of that downline, that, that lineage. And the Bible speaks about David and the, and the great house of David, and then finally says that down that lineage of kings underneath David would have eventually come the king of kings, who would at least through Mary's uh, genetic line be a descendant from, mm-hmm. from David herself. But there was no reference to David or Solomon outside of the Bible until 1992. And then there was an excavation going on in the northern part of Israel in an area called Dan. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says that they would blow the horn and call together all Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Well, Dan's the one of the northernmost cities, and Beersheba was one of the southernmost cities. So it'd be like saying, come everybody from the border of Canada to the border of Mexico. Let's get together, all you United States people. Well, Dan, in the northern part, they were excavating there at an area called Tel Dan in archaeological speak. A uh, Tel is a mounded up area. You, you go somewhere and you see this hill and you say, why is that raised up compared to others? And it turns out underneath is like a city mm-hmm. that's been devastated and filled in and filled over and built up. And so excavations at the Tel Dan found a tablet there with some inscriptions in it. It actually, uh, ultimately, it was in three different pieces. It had been broken in a, and reused. Many of these pieces are reused by subsequent generations who rebuild cities as parts of walls of other houses. Uh, you know, today we buy new brick down at Home right. Depot, but mm-hmm. back then, if you saw a piece of cut brick, you know, block, you go grab it and Save use it for time. your house. Right, right. Yeah. So when they found these pieces and put them back together, there is this inscription that is from the King Haziel, who was in control of that northern area up near Syria, and the inscription uh, talks about and records his campaign against King Jehu, who was a descendant of David, one of the kings that came in later. And that's actually that battle between Haziel and Jehu is recorded in the Bible in Kings and Chronicles. But uh, this is uh, when it's translated what the what the fragment says. Then my father, King Haziel's father lay down and went to his fathers, meaning he died. There came up the king of Israel before time in the land of my father, but Hadad made me king, and Hadad went on before me, and I went forth of my kings, and I killed kings who harnessed chariots and thousands of horsemen, and I killed, uh, and then there's parts of it that are fragmentary that are missing, Mm -hmm. so it jumps over, the king of Israel and killed uh, Jehu, and overthrew the house of David hmm. and made them to pay tribute to me. Wow. So here's a reference not just to David, but to the house of David. Yeah. Long after David had died, yeah. because he had killed one of the descendants of David, he, he was boasting in his placard that he had destroyed the house of David, the line and the lineage of David, yeah. in perfect keeping with how the Bible describes the house of David. Yeah, and it's it's... There's a fascination for me that these things would still make it. There's, there's got to be divine intervention, right? Right. And, right. and, and, and it's almost, and I know this to be true in my own life, uh, in prayer time, God will say, take this step. Why? Well, just trust me. Take, take this step. And it's tough, right? Mm-hmm. Until you fully give over to God is sovereign, and he really does have your best interest. 
the the parsing out of information like this I just find exciting and comforting at the same time because he's doing this not just with me in my own personal life but for his for you know the word became flesh this is the history of God this is our history with him yes and subsequently, there have been a, another finding of another fragment in another part of the empire that re, uh, relates to the House of David as well. So this isn't the only one. But let's shift gears for a second and talk about the Palace of David. Okay. Now, now we're talking about a real place, a yes. real, real physical place, not the generic term House of David being like a line or a lineage, but the Palace of David in, in Jerusalem itself. Where is that? Where is that great palace and all? Well... Uh, excavations have been going on in some parts of Jerusalem, but it's hard to excavate there because people live there. Their houses are there. And in many places, the actual uh, area of the land that once was where maybe Jesus would have walked is now 10, 12 feet lower than the actual level of the city that has built up over the years. There may be a bus depot there. When, uh, whenever a house is torn down in Jerusalem, the antiquities authorities and all re, uh, come in before they build a new place over it, and they excavate down to see what anything they can find and then mm-hmm. bury it back up and let the, someone build a house there. And right. one of these houses was being pulled down about 15 years ago, and Eilat Mazur, who's a professor of archaeology over there, an archaeologist, uh, she was part of the team that went in, and they they excavated downward 10, 12 feet. Uh, If you could have seen it, it was like you had a neighbor on one side, a neighbor on the other side, and they're just this pit going down. And they discovered the remains at the lower level there of a house. And as they worked their way out sideways to the edges of what they could excavate, they realized this is bigger than a house of the time of King David. This... Islet Mazur was was sure in her mind that maybe this is the palace of David wow. itself. So over time, it's taken time to get yeah. permission and to move houses and to try to do this excavation. But she's been excavating there for quite some time. And uh, as they have excavated along, they have found an area nearby that contains hundreds and hundreds of clay seals. Now, these clay seals are used when, in the times of the kings when an edict, a royal edict or a law goes forth on a scroll rolled up to go out. They would seal the scroll with a, a piece of clay the size of maybe a quarter or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, just like some people might use wax to seal a letter and push a seal in, they would somewhat do that with the clay. And the scribes would impress their ring seal into the clay to seal the scroll as it was taken out. Uh, When the Babylonians came in and destroyed Israel many, many years after David, fire in the area probably ruined all of the scrolls, but the clay seals that were on them were actually fired in the fire and hardened and survived. And so there are quite a number of these. And each scribal seal that's his ring seal that he impresses in there, it will say on the seal, uh, the scribe of so-and-so or so-and-so. And And so we find these names like Shaphan and... some of the other scribes that are listed in the Old Testament that served during the times of the various kings will actually find during the time of Jeremiah an edict was issued for Jeremiah to be arrested and the scribe who carried it, who's named in the scripture, we found one of these clay seals that is his scribal imprint. So we know all of these events actually happened and so we found jars there in the palace area, broken parts of the jars that are storage areas that say impressed upon them belonging to the king. 
And as we interpret the archaeological finds, we realize this is a large palace area. These are large archives. Uh, these were large stores. This wasn't the the tent of a local chieftain of a loosely group. This was the palace of a fairly thriving empire, and it dates to the time of David. Uh, Direct reference to David's name in the palace remains has not yet been found, but uh, Islet Mazur continues to believe that this is the palace that David and Solomon occupied. It, It unfortunately probably would be the palace from the pinnacle side of it from which he saw Bathsheba, that one faithful fateful night that uh, led to a lot of problems, but nonetheless, most likely the the palace of David. And this is having an impact in two areas. It's having an impact in the archeolo- uh, archaeological uh, and historical areas, but it's also having an impact on the Israelites. They're, you know, young people over there, and this, I, this is from having conversations with some of the people there in Israel— uh, this last October, it's not uh, ritual any longer. You know, it, it's moving from being uh, rituals of we do this because of this to now, no, this is real. This is this is actual history. And these young people who have been questioning, well, why do we do this? Well, well we do this because, you know, grand, 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 granddad did kind of thing. To no, these are real events, real people, and I believe it's going to lend itself to letting the whole story uh, be unfolded, and I, I've kind of seen that with some of the some of the younger people there in Israel. Some of the, uh, the young Jews are saying, you know, this Messiah thing is pretty accurate, too. Right. Well, when we find confirmation that the dates, times, places, people, cities that are mentioned in the historical narrative of the Bible are accurate— that's that's helpful. That's great. Uh, but some critics simply say, okay, so they, they got the name of the city right. You know, that's that's <laughs> right. great. So you're telling me that because of that, there's a son of God? Yeah. Well, we'll lead into where that can lead elsewhere. But certainly if there's a document that purports to tell us that and doesn't get the history and things accurate, then we have troubles. Well, but we know there's no possible way that this young David character you know, killed a giant with a slingshot. I mean, that's just, that's totally ridiculous and way... Sunday school stories for little kids. There we go. That's exactly it. Uh, Oh, really? We're going to continue the conversation. This is Koinonia. You're listening to Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. not entertained i'm sorry i just this is good stuff i enjoy this uh very much and and it's been uh already educational but as i said going into break the uh you know just another one of the stories you have the uh with david and as as a young man and goliath really you're gonna you're you're telling me that this young whippersnapper who was the and if you understand you know jewish culture uh the youngest son uh in there coming out and i mean that's just that's that's just unheard of that that those kind of things didn't really happen 
but there is some evidence, uh, archaeological uh, finds. And Stan, you, you were saying this is from 96 that they started to find this? Yes, in 1996 from the Barhan University at Tel Asafi. This is an excavation uh, area, a tell, a mounded area. They began excavating Tel Asafi. They unearthed a city. This city was thought to be perhaps on the outer edge of Israel's borders, so it might have been an Israeli city. As they did more excavations in it, they found that the language uh, on some of the pottery shards that they used to inscribe and scratch uh, messages and things on, uh, the language was not Israeli, but matched more toward the ancient languages used by the Philistines. The Bible records that the Philistines had five major cities. There was Ekron, I believe, and I can't name all five of them, and and Gath. Mm -hmm. Uh, Goliath was said to have been the Philistine from Gath, Goliath of Gath. And as they excavated this city, they took an aerial photography, and the aerial photography appeared to show a trench all encircling the city as a defensive mechanism. And analysis of the trench system was confirmed as being from a dating time period of the time of David and Solomon. And it uh, has this dating of this trench has been associated with the Aramean siege of Gath by King Haziel, which is recorded in Second Kings chapter twelve. This find supports evidence that Tel Asafi, rather than being an Israeli settlement, is the ancient city of Gath. Mm. and that uh, it was out on the edge of the Israeli territory because of the constant conflict between the Philistines near the coastline and the kingdom of Israel. They found uh, the dating of this material dates it toward the 9th century BC. That puts it in the time of David and Solomon. And the Philistines played a, a prominent role in all of this. And the Bible records that out of Gath this city that's now pretty universally recognized as having been found Mm -hmm. halfway between Jerusalem and Ascalon. And the Bible says that uh, this city's champion was a guy by the name of Goliath. He was the champion of Gath. He certainly uh, was apparently tall, quite tall, quite big, and probably made quite an impression. And back in those days, if you were really tall and really big, you you, you didn't go to the NBA. Right. You, you went to the army. Right. And uh, you get to be on the leading edge of uh, conquering the enemies. And so he probably would have been quite well known in his city. He was their champion, after all. And I suppose the day he died in battle with David must have made quite a hubbub back in Gath. In the excavations that have gone on since 1996, uh, in just recent years, there's been a new find. In 2005, a team of archaeologists were excavating a a debris layer of pottery, pottery shards and animal bones, and they unearthed an inscribed pottery fragment containing two Philistine names. Now, the problem with the names were that they didn't translate well as a word in the context of the phrase to be simply a word. They're more names of people. And in working with this language and knowing what they know from Anatolian and uh, Philistine languages that are similar at that point in time, that it would translate most logically and most likely to the word Goliath. Hmm. 
And when they discovered this, it was like a little bit much for them to take. Right. You know, it's like, okay, I get it that there probably was a city of Gath, but come on, you know, a Goliath. Uh, so now they, there is still some arguments over this, the, yeah. the translation and the partial on it. But, uh, but the clear implication of it is that Goliath as a name was a name that was in use in the city of Gath, either because it was a common name and lots of people apparently had Goliath as a name, so it would end up on one of these pottery shards, or because that Goliath was a pretty big figure in the city and, and he would make mention in various places, and at least some of it might have survived to us today. So we've identified the city of Gath from the time frame of David and Solomon with a figure, at least one, that lived there whose name most likely translates into English as Goliath. Wow. Uh, as I said at the outset, this is your passion to uh, to mine the true depths of uh, biblical history and creation history uh, and the creation story. You're on Facebook with uh, at Reynolds Resources. Reynolds Resources. If you want to um, find out more, you can direct message uh, Stan there, and uh, with whatever question you have, it, it, it will. It, It'll brighten his day. I can just say, knowing Stan, you ask a tough question, that's going to energize him instantly. Uh, But, Stan, in the last couple of minutes we have here, what does all this mean? I mean, you know, this is is great and exciting history. And for me, uh, I just – I love hearing this because – and it's not even that I need support for my belief that the Bible is true. But for someone out there that's going, eh, why is this important? Why is all this stuff that you've shared with us today, why does it mean anything? Because what we know about Jesus Christ primarily comes to us from the Bible, and specifically about the fact that God, who created the universe, never intended to leave us alone or to sit around hands off while we've groped to try to figure a way through this, this life and this system. What we know about Jesus Christ and that God took the initiative to come for us we find it from the Bible primarily. And we want to know that the circumstances surrounding the history of the Bible make sense because the Bible is simply a record of God's activities beginning on the first pages from the creation of the universe to his activities yet to happen on the last pages of the book toward the end of time. Only God who dwells outside of space and time has the ability to tell the future in advance. Because there's lots of religious books around the world, and some of them written by very well-meaning people who think they really had some spiritual experience with something or another, and and they all purport to tell us what we're supposed to do to somehow find our place or be right with God. And what's what's the poor, sincere, seeking person to try to figure out with all of this? How do how do we decide truth? Is it is it by how fervently someone defends it? Uh, if you know, if someone argues with me, do I start? getting red-faced and loud-mouthed and spittle is flying and yelling and they're, how dare you not believe this? And is it the dedication and the fervency of the disciples that leads us to decide whether it's truth or not? I mean, there are certain groups around the world, they they appear to be willing to blow themselves up pretty frequently for what they think is true. Because you don't believe like them, 
Right. You must be eradicated. So you think, would God do that? Would he leave us here to just grope with all of this and try to figure it out ourselves? Or would he take initiative? Would he take action? The Bible is all about God went and found the lost sheep. The shepherd found the lost sheep. It's not so much about the sheep managed to climb back up into the the house of the shepherd, okay? Right. Uh, so it's not about humans trying to find out about God, but about us, reach, uh, God reaching down to us. And so to help us know, he tells the future in advance because anyone else just, in fact, in Isaiah, he says, hey, here, present your case. Declare the end from the beginning of a thing, and then we'll know Mm -hmm. whether your God is God. And so that continues to be one of the hallmarks of our day. Uh, We can argue about whose book was written first and what religion has this and that. But the bottom line is, just tell me the future before it happens Mm. over and over again, at least 100 years in advance, and I'll pay attention to what you're saying to me. Sometimes I get the people knocking on my doors on Saturday morning at the house. You want to talk? And I say, you know, I'd love to talk to you. Um, And here, if you'll just do a little research for me, just go away, find three times when leaders of your religion 100 years in advance accurately predicted the future. Three times. Just find three. Three. It's got to be a hundred years in advance, and it's got to be specific enough that it's not like eh, yeah, you know, maybe somebody be, will right. win or something. And uh, and then come back and let's talk. Yeah, because I, I've got three hundred wow. from various parts of the Bible. Yeah, and so it's important that the Bible be an accurate reflection historically to us because it brings us these future predictions, and it's those future predictions that we've seen come true in hundreds of them about Jesus's first coming. Hundreds of things that are happening in our own day, the rebirth of Israel as a nation, and, and things yet to happen. And so although it will always come down to a matter of faith, you must personally decide to put your faith in Jesus Christ. But it's not blind faith. Mm-hmm. It's a reasonable faith based upon hard archaeological, historical, and scientific evidence, and then based upon a God who declares the end of a thing from the beginning and tells us about it yeah. and lets us read it. I mentioned the other day on the air, uh, we know the ending. You know, it, it, it's, it can be really anxiety-causing to open up your news browser, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, and and uh, uh, Well, past- imagine you're a Syrian Christian. Yeah. And they march you out on that beach in the orange outfits, and they raise the swords up. Yeah. And they say, are you going to turn from Jesus? Because it's very clear in those videos. Yeah. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were killing these people because they were Christians. Yeah. They were followers of Jesus Christ. And, and, you know, whether we live long or short on this planet, whether we die a, a peaceful death in our sleep or a horrible death where someone says, I don't understand. How could a God, how could a loving God let, regardless of what happens, look, nobody gets off this planet alive. Right. All right. We all have to face the one with whom we have to do. The good news is he wants us. He loves us. He wants us. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. Yes. And he knows what real love is. Yes. And he allowed us the, uh, the capacity for knowing that and experiencing it. Uh, You know, a, a new parent with a baby, they see the hope in the future. They, they just love with, with no reason, fully and completely. That's how God loves each of us, mm-hmm. each of us. And he, uh, does it bring him joy to see suffering? No. That's why he wants to restore us to eternity with him. Yes. And nothing but perfection can be in his presence. So we can't get there. 
Not on her own. He had to. He had to make a way. And I'm so grateful and thankful that he did. As am I. Wow. This is good. All right. We will, uh, as I want to do, we, uh, we pray to finish the show. So we'll come back. We'll let you know again where you can find out a little bit more of uh, this information if this is something you want to pursue yourself. And then we'll close in prayer. You're listening to Koinonia. This is Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. Great day today. Uh, I'm excited. And uh, Stan, uh, I want to give you a few moments here to, to just wrap up uh, for our audience the things that you brought to us today. Well, I'm astounded by the fact that the farther away we get from the time of these occurrences and events, the more sure we become about the accuracy of what happened and how it was written down and how it was transmitted to us. You would think it would be the opposite. You would right. think as things faded into the antiquity of times, that, but the modern uh, ability of knowledge, Daniel prophesied about it when he said at the end of time, knowledge shall be increased and people will go to and fro throughout the earth rapidly. Uh, we certainly see that both in transportation and uh, the internet and all. And so we actually become more sure today, 2,000 years away from the events and 3,000 years away than some people were who were 50 or 100 years away. Right. Right. And that's, that's astounding. So the question today isn't, did these things happen? Do you, uh, did they write them down? Was it accurate? The question today is, what will you do with the message? Right. Will you act upon it? Or will you continue to say, well, I don't see God doing anything. Right. Uh, he's not, he never moved for me. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's, you know, the atheists of 100 years ago were convinced that once we uh, were able to look smaller or look bigger, i.e. the universe or the, you know, microscope or whatever, that there would be a, a, an explanation for this. There wouldn't be a creator. You know, just the opposite has happened. Right. The smaller we look, the more absolutely certain we are that this didn't happen by accident. Stunning complexity at the smallest levels. <laughs> Every smallest level. Stan, thanks. Again, Reynolds Resources on Facebook. If you'd like to message uh, Stan, always you can email me, Tom, at faithtalk1360.com. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, wanting, <laughs> wanting to have a relationship with us. And, Lord, that you would be willing to reveal yourself to us in your creation so that we could know you more fully, deeply, and uh, with with uh, a warm and positive love for us. It's just, it's overwhelming. Uh, Lord, we thank you. We love you so very much. I thank you for Stan's passion and uh, being able to enlighten us with, you know, what is real and true. Lord, I thank you for my wife, Mary. Bless her. Yep. Give her a wonderful, wonderful day. In thy heavenly name I pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Stan. Glad to do it.